Hello, this is Josh Calixto, one of your hosts of Bad End Podcast. Kyle had to dip out for a little bit during the recording of this episode, so I kind of wanted to fill in some airtime. And the way that I did that was by re reading this article that he sent me. If you want to check it out, it's called The Perma Weird. It's by Venkatesh Rao. Um, if you want to check that out, at Ribbon Farm Studio, one word. There was essentially a, a large part of this podcast that I have devoted uh, talking by myself about this article and reading it out loud. And I don't want to include it in the audio of this normal podcast. So I'm just like kind of pasting at the end. So if you listen past the ending of the episode, you'll hear me read this article aloud and uh, talk about it in terms of what the game is about. So if you listen to the episode and you feel like you still want to hear more, you still want to hear us like wax philosophical about this game and to have a few more like through lines to draw with society at large, then uh, yeah, go ahead and listen to the rest of that. But here's the episode. Welcome to Bad End Podcast, episode number 123. This is Josh Calixto, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Kyle Cookstell. Kyle, That's me. how's it going? Good. We are going to talk about Tears of the Kingdom, which this is a, this is a big moment for Bad End Podcast because the first episode first was Breath ever. of the Wild themed. The very first episode of Bad End Podcast. I went back and listened to it. And, you know, it's how funny it? to hear how you change over the years, you know, like just the way you talk about stuff and your the comfort level when talking on a podcast and what it's like you're going thinking back about. And like and reading like old, have you ever like gone back and like read really old Facebook messages that you like sent to people back when people use Facebook oh Messenger my, a lot? Yes. And you're like, that was me? What? Yeah, like, I can't believe I talked like that. I talked what like that? Showed. It's not so bad. I don't think listening to old bad ends is, is quite that level. <laughs> We have like a pretty um, good shelf life, I think. Some of it's interesting though, because it's like, oh yeah, I definitely lived in Brooklyn when we recorded this. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, definitely was reading a lot of uh, news and think pieces at the time. It was just a different time. In it general. was a different. It was a different era. There were video game outlets, um, <laughs> features being published. Fandom was not quite as intense as it is now. And, and it's going to be really interesting to talk about Tears of the Kingdom in relation to that, because the thing that I kind of want to start out with is setting the, <laughs> setting the stage here for what's going on, where Tears of the Kingdom and the new Zelda game came out and the reviews for it, this was, this has been the biggest kind of like wake up call to me about like where we are now in the world when it comes to video game reviews and publications and stuff like that, because Yo, every publication gave this thing a 10 out of 10. Someone gave it four stars out of five and people were pissed because it, there were, it wasn't saying it was a masterpiece. Um, Dude, it's my, and, and it's it's, my like, opinion that like every giant video game is always accompanied by like some batch of 14 year olds that get radicalized by that game's performance where like it, it's some, it's something <laughs> like akin to like discovering the Beatles when you're 15 like every kid has got like their big game release that's going to come out when they're 15 and they like put it, but they like put themselves into the concept of this game coming out. So like in such that like impugning it becomes this like personal attack where you're like, how dare, 
you give this game a four out of five or, you know, they get radicalized because it's like bad or something. Um, I think that this was like the most recent game that was poised to like be that it's like, this is like definitely someone's Beatles album of video games. Like I played Bioshock. The Bioshock was like my game like this. This is definitely someone else's. You know what? You know what the first thing I think of is for me. I feel like we all have kind of one of those. At least the people who think about their own lives get critically from time to time. Um, it's freaking the movie Three Hundred. Oh, yeah. Spider Film Three Hundred. <laughs> when that came out, I was like, "This is the best movie ever made." Yeah. And I can't like I couldn't fathom the thought of someone not liking Three Hundred, yeah. the movie. Dude, and I was like, ripped. "You have to be." make you have to just be looking for attention you have to be making it up like you're insane and granted like if i had taken the grand total of my life the amount of movies i had seen at that point it had to have been like a hundred or something yeah. like max you know and it, i'm like so confident that this is you're like 300 is some, the best movie <laughs> it's, it's like it's, it's like the best movie by in that like sense of like um it's got <laughs> all the stuff you like in it and you, you don't have like enough critical distance, I guess would be the proper term to like step back from it and say like, yeah, Oh, maybe this is sort of pandering or like do any sort of like critical thought about why you like something. I mean, yeah. 300 still fucking rips. Like don't get me wrong. But yeah. I think it's the same thing where you like, you look at like some kid who's like really into like the latest Marvel movie. And I'm like, Oh, that's like their 300. You're like okay i guess that sort of makes sense <laughs> there was that and then like californication by the red hot chili peppers as a kid living in socal i was like this is the best album ever made jump less says riven for me yeah i mean all these things are good and can be good but it's like just the concept of someone having something negative to say about it is unfathomable to us because we've staked some part of our personality on it blah 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 and getting back to tears of the kingdom it's wild to see this because it now feels like we've reached this tipping point this critical mass where it actually seems like the people reviewing this game are actively afraid of the audience like <laughs> the extent the lengths to which these reviewers go to like not spoil anything to not discuss anything is just like yo they are doing somersaults it's, avoid it's sort of insane. Spoiling. Yeah. Like, like we're going to like, I think we should say up front, we are going to talk about some parts of the game. Uh, I don't think we're going to spoil anything major. So like, but we are going to talk about the game, which turns out, I feel like you need to like say some stuff about what's in the game to talk about it. Um, in any sort of depth, like what you would imagine happens in a review. So <laughs> I guess be warned that we're going to talk about things in the game, but well, it's like, that's such a bullshit excuse too, because like you can talk about the ideas of like what you have criticisms of and what you have like unique. And this is the thing when we talk about, I have like a thousand, sorry, lines going on in my head right now. But one of them is that like people always talk about criticism is like, you're saying bad things about a game. And it's like, yeah, such yo, a critic. it's not just that. It's like, I have more unique good things to say about the game too as a critic, you know? Like <laughs> you're you're not fucking processing the game this way. You know, like 
that's what these people are paid to do. But like, you can't think about it negatively in any way. And then getting back to the spoiler thing, it's also funny because the day before the game, if you spoil anything that happens in the first hour of the game, people were like, yo, there's way too much shit in this. Like, this is crazy. And then 10 minutes after the game comes out, you can say like, all of a sudden you could say like, what's after happens after five hours, just by virtue of the fact that the game has come out. Yeah. It, there's not even like a formal line. People just stop caring as much once it's quote hit store shelves where the, this isn't, it's not real dude. Spoilers aren't real. Nobody is going to tell you what happens in the last four hours of the game. Nobody is spoiling major plot points. Like, that's it's just not a real thing but with all that i mean the setup here <laughs> there is so much more to be said we should, and, and we should also take a step back and say like what tears of the kingdom sort of is at, at yeah. a high level yes so i want to say that we will do what the reviews didn't do all right we're gonna <laughs> our our aim here is to like actually give a review of tears of the kingdom that's not gonna have a number score but we're gonna talk about the I'll things that like make this game great that make this game maybe not so good that don't require us to spoil things because it is possible to have opinions and a take on a video game if you're not spoiling anything, all right? So Tears of the Kingdom, the long-awaited follow-up to the 2017 widely regarded masterpiece, Breath of the Wild. It's, Kyle, do you want to just say mechanically and, you know, what, what's sure, going yeah, on yeah. here in the game? So yeah. basically, like, Breath of the Wild was famously a giant open-world Zelda game, uh, and Tears of the Kingdom says... Let's do that again in the same world, but also add like sky islands and also first mild spoiler of the podcast, uh, the depths, which is sort mm -hmm. of like an underground area that I can't tell the, when you look at the map of the depths, it is like, I can't tell if it's exactly one-to-one -one with a ground land mass or it's like there's some weird like dilation going on. I think it's not literally like one-to-one. -one, so it's not like there's two full layers, but I think it's, it's, it's I mean, it's substantially large. Um, and this time around, uh, it's different than breath of the wild for a few reasons. And all, I mean, honestly, someone just to dip a little bit back into what you were talking about with like sort of being able to review it and criticize it. I think you sort of get some of this stuff with Nintendo too, where they just said like nothing about yeah. this game sort of coming out, which was also the same sort of line they took with breath of the wild. Like no one, like, like people were just not expecting breath of the wild to be good. I think it's very easy to forget that now, but yeah. like you go and watch some of those like original trailers for breath of the wild, which was like all there was before the game came out. And then you look at like the previous Zelda games before that, which would have been skyward sword, wind waker remake, I mean, twilight princess, uh, I don't think I'm forgetting any big ones. Like the, the premise of Zelda games is like sort of action adventure dungeon exploring stuff. And so then the, when you see these trailers for Breath of the Wild that look like vibe pieces, and this is also at the same time where Nintendo's reputation is just like in shambles after the Wii U, where like every everyone is just like ready to like write Nintendo off. If they're like, yeah, whatever, Switch, whatever new Zelda game like we're all done with Zelda now like there was just zero expectation for it and then Breath of the Wild comes out and like the Switch is obviously a massive success Breath of the Wild is uh, a huge success as well there was just like no expectation there so Tears of the Kingdom is kind of like 
weirdly following in this like lineage of like a revolutionary game that, I mean, and also we're saying like the lineage of breath of the wild has been felt like pretty substantially, I think throughout a lot of major games at this point. So it's, it's like a genre defining game that kind of rearticulates what it means to be an open world game. And so tears of the kingdom has got like a pretty big act to follow where it's basically like, well, it's that again, you know, it's, it's totally like, and we'll talk about this. I'm sure like it's totally the like second album problem. Like, you know, can Earl Sweatshirt make a good album again? Or like, can Nas top Ill Mad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can so we got the a couple Beatles comments. Hard Day's Night. Roboku says, how do I skip ahead to the number score? Jumpless said, need a full breakdown here. Graphics, music, story, overall. Oh, man, man, I'm going to give them all a number. Brood says, but when are you going to answer? Is this game worth a $70 price tag? Um, I want to start a video game review site where uh, it just gives stuff thumbs up or thumbs down. But the reviews are also credited to real people. And then I hope we get on Metacritic where it's like a thumbs up is 100% and a thumbs down is like a 20 or something. I think that'd be really fun. I want like a site that's there's like a box with just the scores and it's just like labeled for the Metacritic and then you just put all the numbers in there and then the review is just like totally not talking about any of that shit at all. You know, I've thought about using like GPT to like, I feel like, I feel like you could seriously like, okay, we'll, we'll talk about the quick stuff in a second. Anyways. So tears of the kingdom is basically breath of the wild again, but then we added a lot of other stuff on top of that. So like, Mm -hmm. this is where it gets a little spoilery for sure. And I, cause I think that the differences for what tears of the kingdom is compared to breath of the wild kind of reveal themselves over time. And they do so in like a nonlinear way. So if you're playing through the game, the stuff that's different is going to be different to each person that's playing it versus like um, just immediately. The most immediate stuff is stuff they've shown in the trailer. So there's like some new powers um, that are interesting uh, to say the least. Um, I don't think it's spoilery to talk about the powers. I don't know. I don't think it's spoilery. I'm just thinking like in terms of how they situate themselves, like, Breath of the Wild sort of had these sex, this like selection of powers effectively that were like, I would say they were like broadly related to traversal and kind of like ways to get around the world. Um, Tears of the Kingdom has some of that stuff as well. But then the kind of main thing is that you now have this ability to build stuff in the game um, that are sort of like mm-hmm. one off things. I think honestly, like the best comparison is if, um, if you played that PC game Besiege, I think it's actually on consoles now too, where you kind of like build siege engines. Like it's it's sort of like that. You basically like are attaching stuff together and you're like adding fans and guns and whatever. And then uh, you kind of just do stuff with that. Um, and so that's like a, that's a weird part of the game because it's both like a very big part and a very small part, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. But anyways, so like <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom is sort of like Breath of the Wild with some extra stuff like it, it is it is at least immediately it is not the like revolutionary game-changing thing of breath of the wild like i think it would probably be a stupid idea for them to do that anyways it's very much like i think one of the reviews that i read described it where it's it sort of makes breath of the wild feel like a first draft which i, I would take some uh i have some things to say about that comparison but it sort of makes sense. Like if you imagine like breath of the wild, or like, I think I said on the bad end discord, I said, it's like, 
it's like Breath of the Wild for gamers. <laughs> it's like got a lot of more. Yes, stuff that's in that's it. exactly okay. So let's yeah. dig into this because if you're here, you know you've read the reviews, the game's out, you probably played some of it, and you want to hear like people say actual stuff about the game that's not like what the game is. And I feel like the, that's the best place to start is like, what are the differences between this and Breath of the Wild in a substantial way? That's not just like, oh, you have these new abilities. Link's got a bunch of extra tools in the arsenal this time around, blah, blah, blah. And Breath of the Wild for gamers is like such a good <laughs> encapsulation of what this is, because what I'm saying, like Breath of the Wild was very much notable for a lot of its emptiness, its peace of mind. In just the title of the game, Breath of the Wild. It was like Breath of the Wild was it's a, a vibe. vibe, dude. There's this like, even the title of the game, Breath of the Wild. It's about the wilderness. It's about, uh, you know, self-reliance. It's about this like quietude, the sense of like the pitter patter of your feet against the earth and wrestling against the elements, man. Like the fact that you couldn't climb a mountain when it was raining and like you get to just interact with this vast wilderness around you and be kind of dominated by it in some ways. And then you just slowly over time develop this mastery over it that becomes intriguing in, a, in and of itself. But there was a lot of moments where you're just like running around for hours. A lot of people that I know personally bounced off the game because it got like kind of boring in that respect. Yeah, and, I mean, like, and well, yeah. I was playing, I was playing breath of the wild before tears of the kingdom came out. And I like, I still haven't actually beat breath of the wild. I just like, it's just sip it like a fine wine or something. But like, yeah, yeah. I ran, I like finally started heading West and I just like ran for like two hours around like the West and encountered like, nothing but like a giant canyon and some like wilderness and stuff and like it was like fine it was like fun and cool but like that sort of sense of like isolation and loneliness and i think tone is definitely different in tears of the kingdom i'm not gonna say it's better or worse but it's it's a substantially different thing and i think i think that like you i don't think just doing breath of the wild again would have been necessarily smart and i think that especially because you're going in the same world again you're like yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've already run to Hatano Village once, you know, I don't need to do that again. Mm -hmm. So it really rewards having played Breath of the Wild, but at the same time is offering something like different, despite all the sort of obvious similarities. Yeah, I mean, Breath of the Wild drew comparisons to Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, um, I think like it's important to remember that because of, you know, the way that your horse ran around because of the way that like there were so, these open fields where you're just like kind of just seeing what this place has to offer in contrast to the kingdom. Guess, well, one thing I'll say too real quickly, just to kind of really nail that point. I remember when Breath of the Wild like came out and then Genshin came out and a lot of the commentary from like people who are like not as into Breath of the Wild we're talking about Genshin kind of like improving on the formula where they're like, Oh, like <laughs> yeah, Genshin yeah. is like a better version of breath of the wild because there's like micro progression and like gotcha mechanics and like stuff that lets you sink your teeth into that kind of like minute to minute gameplay a lot more. Whereas breath of the wild just has like none of that. And I mean, there's probably even like a, a something to sort of look at in terms of the design lineage of like modern Nintendo, especially comparing, comparing like this to breath of the wild and also comparing uh, uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons to like previous Animal Crossings like there's clearly like a lot more stuff 
There's like there's mm-hmm. like a stronger sense of like gamerism in both those games that I think is very uh, atypical of kind of their predecessors. But anyway, sorry, you're gonna say something. No, no, I, yeah. So in contrast to me, Tears of the Kingdom feels maximalist in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like <clears throat> not just in the sense that there is more stuff because this thing is packed like everywhere something is happening like you never get the sense that you're in an empty space where there's like nothing to do and you're it's just you and your thoughts like that Mm -hmm. happens a lot in a breath of the wild but in tears of the kingdom it's like even if you're in a space that's like relatively empty when it comes to activities in your near vicinity like because of the way the crafting systems work, because you can just produce rockets and like platforms out of your backpack and create these like contraptions that allow you to fly, it it feels like there's always something to do, some way to progress in the world, some way to get past where you are to do something different. And I'm again, it's hard to say whether that's better or worse because th- for me, the distinction is this game is more fun. Um, it, like in the moment to moment, like there's so much more to do in this game and it it's much better at capturing the attention of the player and kind of keeping you there. But in, in a way that's like reminiscent of pro- maybe, I guess I will make this comparison all the time, but I think it's a very common first game to sequel mentality of alien to aliens where it's like, <laughs> yeah, the first one was quiet, moody, atmospheric it it did all these like new art house things because it had like this mysteriousness about it and this kind of like arty vibe. And then the second one, because the first one, it felt like the first draft thing, it felt like Nintendo was like creating this world that was so big that they needed to make it interesting in a specific way. And for them, it was like getting the tone just right. But for this one, it's like, we have this world, let's just fill it up with shit. So the tone like doesn't even really matter. And I've said this in the Discord again, patreon.com slash badend, which is that the tone of this game often feels like an absolute mess. Like, oh, yeah. it's all over the it's place, like, it's man. It's like totally like uh, player driven for like, for better or for worse. And it also, mm-hmm. it also makes like, <laughs> I was talking to, I think Wes was the person from the Discord as well recently. And he was like, yeah, it's like cool to have like rockets on stuff, but like it's not really a Zelda thing. And it's like, yeah, I didn't really feel like Zelda at all. <laughs> it's just kind of like it, it. It's it's so weird, especially because it's like it's there's there's like not even any Zelda game. It's like calling back to in those moments. I I think it, I think it's especially like the building stuff just feels like totally insane. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's 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 like so insane that it's you can't even square it with what's going on, and like it's not like people are reacting to it. Like, whoa, it's weird that you built a rocket ship or like an airplane. Everyone's just kind of like living like their sort of pastoral rural fantasy life, and you're like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos in space. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. Kerbal space program. Yeah, you're like, you're like straight up Kerbal space programming, like some stuff in this game. And it's just like, okay, I guess I'll do that. And then I'll go like do a dungeon. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of elucidate more on what I'm talking about when it comes to tone, um, you have 
this, and this is where we start getting into like what people might consider quote spoilers, but if you've played five hours of the game, you know what we're talking about. Like it's not, you know, if you if you played some of the game, you know what this is. We're not actually spoiling things. I'm only about, I don't, I actually don't know how many hours I am into this game and I don't actually want to know really, but I played like all weekend basically. <laughs> just fucking so, gamer it. You just yeah, really I, I it. full gamered. It's one of those games where you just like a day goes by and you're like, I was playing for that long. What the hell? Like, yeah, how yeah, is yeah. it? How's the sun going down right now? It doesn't it doesn't feel it feels like you did nothing sometimes. Yeah. But um, there's this moment in Breath of the Wild where you find this labyrinth in the corner of the world. And it's one of the most powerful parts of the game for most of the people that I've talked to this game about. And you find this labyrinth that's just stylistically different than anything else in the world. It looks alien. It looks weird. Like, you know how lines are an anomaly in nature? Like, you never see straight lines. That's, like, the vibe that you get from looking at this freaking labyrinth when you come across it in the world of Breath of the Wild. And Tears of the Kingdom is, like, that kind of shit is just everywhere to the point where it's not surprising anymore it's not like there's nothing in this world that has this sense of mystery in a sense because everything is like this stuff they've explained that it's zonai uh architecture and Mm -hmm. zonai uh technology and now the world due to the early goings on of the the plot the the upheaval which is kind of the the sticking point plot wise of this entire game again not spoilery spoilery it's all come up to the surface and now this entire world is covered in Zonai architecture and technology and you have to like interface with it. You have to see it. And it's just, it's a mess. Like it's everywhere. It's shifted the whole world. Everything is different. And it just doesn't feel like there is any central cohesive like direction of where the art and vibe of this game is. It's like pulling you between this like hellish underworld that's very reminiscent of FromSoft in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And then it's got these like sky islands that feel like Mario Galaxy with all the stuff that it's presenting you to do. And it's so bright and fun. And then you have like the surface that's just more Breath of the Wild in a sense, but like it's constantly pulling you up to the heavens and down into hell. And it's like, yo like there's so much going on at any given time i'm never having a bad time but i also don't feel like when you were in kakariko village in ocarina of time or when you were in um the fucking kokiri forest as a kid like you're you're not getting that centralized zelda feeling or aesthetic it's because it's pulling you in so many different directions and none of them have like a centralized ethos. That's I think especially like the, like one of the, I think I said this even on the podcast. Number one was like one of like the most amazing things about breath of the wild was, um, it did this thing where like it, it, it like it effectively like delivered on the like decades long anticipation of, Zelda's world where it's like you heard about Kakariko village. You like heard about Hyrule field. You like heard about like, you know, Grudos Canyon. Uh, and like you saw that. And then like you look at like Zora's domain and like Ocarina of time. And it's like a 10 by 10 room with like a fish in it. And you're like, Oh, that's Zora's domain. And it's like a sort of a limitation, you know, of the platform at the time to be like, that's it. But then like, 
you like go to Zora's domain and Breath of the Wild, Wild, and you're like, holy fuck, like that is a Zora's domain. Or like you go to like Gerudo Village and you're like, that is a fucking desert. Or like you go to go see the Gorons, you're like, that's a fucking mountain. Like that is Death Mountain, baby. Like that is it right there. And that's just, just gone now. Like it's just the, they've kind of like, blown their proverbial load on that which is like what they should have done like to be clear i think that's like totally fine and it's awesome they've like delivered on that vision but it also means that a lot of the sort of kind of implicit thematic resonance of like exploring and being like oh like what is the great deku tree like in breath of the wild like Mm -hmm. what does that look like that's just gone so like that kind of just implicit resonance of like discovering those things for the first time that I think really pulled you through breath of the wild, especially if you're a Zelda fan that like that stuff that like really pulled you through the game is just like not here now. And so they're kind of like plugging a lot of the rest of the holes of the, of that sort of experience with like all this other stuff. And I think it's, it's sort of an interesting place to be like, this is maybe like a different topic, but it's like, well, where does, you know, Zelda go now with this? Cause it's like, going back to kind of the just dungeon formula feels like it'd be really limiting, but also like this game is really big mm-hmm. and <laughs> this is, this is a totally separate topic, but it feels like with this game and Elden ring in the past two years, I'm like, maybe games are getting too big. Like maybe, maybe we've actually tipped into the point where they're like too big, I'm, um, which we can maybe talk about later. That's, but, I um, have this feeling with this game and I didn't really have it as much with Breath of the Wild and to kind of pick apart maybe the reasons why I when it comes to length, it's not inherently a problem, right? A lot of gamers consider it to be good if a game lasts a long time and is offering you unique content. And I think accomplishment wise, achievement wise, what the developers were able to do, it's an achievement. It's incredible. But the thing for me is that it, it's it's overwhelming because there's no like real good break off point here. Like there's yeah. nothing there's no stopping point for it's you. Just like, like there's always signal. shit. Like it's everything all the time. Like I'm like I don't even know where to go. I'm combing over an area for four hours and I don't even feel like I've seen like any of it. Like yeah. I've never felt that in a game, like even in Elden Ring, when I go through a dungeon, I'm like, okay, I've seen this, like this area is pretty much done. Like I, I feel good about this, this game. It's like, I, I feel like I'm missing everything. Like you, the you game get, is it's, constant it's like FOMO. FOMO. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, I was like, I spent like three, like the last time I played recently, I was spent like three or four hours in the depths. And like, the only thing I could focus on when I was in the depths was like, Oh fuck! There's like Sky Islands. <laughs> that was like yeah, the main like, thing I was thinking about. I was like, "There's so much game I'm not doing right now." I like, know. Literally like, two other layers of game on top of the game that I am playing that I'm not even looking at right now. And so it's like, as someone who sort of plays these games like kind of a completionist and really combs over everything, it's like I have to do that three times. Yeah. Like it's it's a lot like it is a lot and it's not just like oh you're a dad now i'm like no like this is a lot of game like for this any is, this human is, being for yeah. any human being with any substantial time like yeah you can 
fucking speed run the main story in like five hours or whatever. But if you're like going to play it like a video game, like that's a lot of game, man. Like that's just a lot, like a, a lot of stuff. And like Elden Ring was pretty overwhelming, but I feel like this is like even more overwhelming. <laughs> it <laughs> feels just like, they, like, like where just do I been making stuff to fill this world. I like, like it's years. Actually, just been, they've just been putting stuff in this game is what it feels it's like. Hard. <laughs> It's like hard for me to fathom how people can do this. Like, it's so huge. I'm like, how, what? I'm not even thinking about like what it takes to develop and like program this from like a, a labor standpoint. I'm just, I'm thinking about just like the amount of shit they put in. Yeah. Like not considering all the new assets and like dialogue that they had to make. Like, it's just, it's, it's beyond understanding for me. It's weird to also like think about this in comparison to like any big multiplayer game. I mean like Fortnite or like Minecraft mm-hmm. or what, like it's weird because it's a single player game that feels like it's playing in that arena in terms of it's like kind of skill ceiling slash like time ask. It's, it's so like we've, we've just moved beyond the like 30 hour triple a game as like a form I think like, like there's like God of war <laughs> yeah. and like, that's like a thing. And then there's like horizon ish horizon slash like Assassin's Creed. Like, I feel like that's kind of in like a bucket, which is this like kind of very authored, slightly smaller worlds. And then we get to this like Elden ring Zelda thing where it's like just this like different mode of operation feels like in effect that you have to like reckon with as a player which is weird because like, like you're saying, right? Like it's one thing to play God of war in like five sittings. You like sit down, you play it for like, you know, five or six hours each time or three or four hours. I don't know how long God of war it takes to beat, but like you're going to do it and you're like, cool. That was really awesome. Or like uncharted or last of us or any of that stuff is like that. And this is like, it's, it's such like an all encompassing world that is also sort of non goal oriented that I sit down with tears of the kingdom and it almost feels like that feeling you get when you start like sitting down to play video games, you're just like scrolling through your steam library and like, what am I going to play? What am I going to play? What am I going to play? And like something about like that, like kind of decision paralysis of just choosing what to do feels like this game is now big enough to evoke that feeling of saying like, okay, you've played. You're like, okay, well I got to like do, I got to go here and do this stuff. Or like, maybe I'm going to go over here and do this. And like, Oh God, like, I spent two hours running around just cooking and now like I got to go do this other thing. And like, uh, well, uh, you, you kind of like lock up a little bit. Yeah. Because and you want to, cause you want to like do the, you know, fun stuff or whatever, but also like the game is incredibly withholding. So it doesn't like tell you about where it's like fun things are at or, or anything. And yeah, it's like, I, speaking of which, And I want to move on to this to you because this is kind of one of my other friction points with this game is that the way that this game is designed is also a lot different from Breath of the Wild, Um, not just in like the sense of what you're able to do, but the way it's balanced, the way that it introduces things to you. There's something that feels about this game that feels almost like antagonistic or (laughs) um, malicious in some ways, like there's not this sense of like benevolence that breath of the wild had where it was like, if you, you will be rewarded for exploring. There's a, there's a lot of senses in which this game feels like the, they're 
the decisions that they made kind of like take away from you so as not to interfere with like the sanctity of of how this world is meant to be explored like it's like the author constantly trying to be like no you you're not supposed to explore the world this way because that's not like how we want you to do it it's like they saw how speedrunners treated breath of the wild and like constantly sought to break it and it feels like they are explicitly creating a dialogue with those people where it's like a lot of the design design Just decisions like almost like feel like they're meant to be like no dude we're not going to let you do that we're not going to we're not going to let you do the whistle sprinting which in Breath of the Wild there was this like kind of um exploit where you could constantly whistle for your horse while sprinting and you never run out of sprint which like essentially breaks the game <laughs> it's like in a bug. this game in this game if you tap the sprint button which is like part of the whistle sprinting technique your stamina runs out like twice as fast. It feels like they're giving a middle finger to all the people who are trying to do that. Like, oh, you're trying to do the whistle sprint, bro? Like, we're going to take double the amount of stuff. Um, another thing, like, um, and I've said all this stuff in the Discord earlier today, but again, there's this thing where like, if you get on, um, there's these wing contraptions that looks like, it looks like a, the base of an airplane type thing silhouette. And it allows you to essentially glide through the world without wasting your stamina of being on your paraglider. But you use these things early on and you figure out these things disappear after like 20, 30 seconds of use. And it's like, wait, why is this thing disappearing? A lot of the other contraptions that you get in the world don't disappear. And it's simply due to the fact that they don't want you to use this thing to like fly across the map early in the game. So that like you have to explore it yourself. And it's like, yeah, I understand why that exists. But the fact that you designed around someone potentially using this to go further than they're supposed to feels like you're making design decisions to not allow me to do something. And it shines through very specific, uh, very explicitly. And it comes up repeatedly in this game. I feel like you're sort of cherry picking because I would definitely disagree with you in general to say that like i'm sort of surprised how often a game feels like it says yes maybe like some of that stuff is like okay well there's like yeah they don't want you to break the game but like you can just slap some shit together and press go and it's just like <laughs> it just like does it most of the time like i think that like that is more surprising to me that that like i, I think i can't remember if we, if we talked about this like the last episode of the podcast i believe with the the trailer but we were talking about how um, in the gameplay demonstration, they showed that you can like attach two swords together to like fuse stuff. And I think that like maybe a tick against your thesis here is that like you can just basically attach anything to anything. Like you, I found a, a sword that someone had attached a bow to. And I feel like in a game that says no to you, that you would not be able to attach a sword to a bow. That seems like silly, but you can I do agree. it. And I think that like, there was um something we mentioned last last episode was like it's this really like I think that it's there's some design philosophy at play here that I think is a lot more sort of playful than typical like Western design, I would say. And the 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 use case I had was that like in um in the gameplay demo they attached two swords together to make like a very long sword. And what that means was that if you hold that sword and like walk into a cave, that sword is going to like clip through the cave entrance and like go into the stone or whatever. And just, it, it will look 
dissonant. Like it will look like a video game, right? It's like if, if we're trying to suspend our disbelief here and say that like we're in this magical virtual world or whatever, that sword should like theoretically like physics off the edge of the cave door and kind of like bend in or something. And like, if you're playing like red dead or God of war or like horizon or any of these like big Western games, like that's something they would do to kind of maintain this immersion. But I feel like this game is like very down for you just to like fuck around and the world I, is kind of crafted just enough to say like, yeah, you can fuck around. We're going to give you some limits, but like you can do a lot of stuff that we aren't necessarily anticipating. And we're going to be okay with that uh, kind of at a baseline um, versus so, like really trying to limit you to say like, Oh, you can't, I mean, I, the, I didn't actually know about the glider thing, but like, I think the other thing I read on the discord was someone said that, um, you can only have like 15 items or something attached to each other. And it's like, okay, there's like some limitation there, but like, I feel like most of the time the game says yes. Yeah. So <laughs> to kind of, sometimes when I'm making a point, I like don't talk about the things that I consider to be like a given. Mm-hmm. This is one of my big problems. I, I realize when I like listen back to things that I say, I'm like, I, I didn't say like the base thing that I just like assume that everybody knows to be true. But the base here that I'm working with is like, yes, this game is like all about the possibilities and the, the amount of possibilities that it affords to players is incredible. Second to none, uh, really one of the biggest strengths in this game. But I think what I'm trying to say and the reason why it, it's kind of stuck out to me and, and something that's kind of bothered me over time is that, first of all, when someone gives people a lot of control uh, and the, the, the ability to do a lot of things, there's there's a few things that like they want. A, they want to break it right? Yeah. B, they want to like optimize it. They want to use it like in the best way possible to do interesting things because let's be honest, three quarters of the fuse shit doesn't do anything. Like it does not benefit you in any, you know, concrete way. So you want to do stuff that's actually matters. That's like a cool combination. Plus it actually like feels good, which a very large percentage of the fusions and interactions that you can do just don't feel very good or there's a better version of it. Um, but it feels like when you do that stuff, when you, they, when you aim to do that stuff, there have been specific stop gaps designed in place so as to stop you from making the most of it, which again makes sense from a balancing standpoint, but feels very much like they're like, no, 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 you can't like, you can't have that much fun with it, buddy. Whereas it felt the opposite in Breath of the Wild. We're like, we're not going to design around every potential use case and like put things in the way that like superficially mess with the internal logic of our game systems just so that the game will feel more balanced and that you, you, the player, do not get in the way of what I, the author, am trying to create, the experience that I'm trying to create. Like, it feels like a very intentionally created dialogue. I see this a lot in the combat as well. Like, the way, dude, is it just me? I'm getting one shot in every fucking fight. Am I, am I losing it here? I don't, maybe. I feel like there's like this thing where, like, they seem they seem really, really interested in trying to get you to like fight the right way. And I think that it's, this is like a really, I was thinking about this. Cause like, obviously they like invoke a lot of from comparisons with the stuff going on in the depths, but the, like 
as much as they want you to think that the combat is like really important and nuanced, like it's just not. It, you can it, like it does not work for and me. You can yeah. like sometimes parry or jump around, but like most of the time, if you just have like a stronger sword, like that will get you <laughs> a lot of the way, and it'll be faster than having to try to like wait for an opponent to like do its move or something. And I think that they kind of are doing a few things in here where like there's there's multiple places in this game um, where they are like proactively trying to get you to engage with the like systems. Like uh, the best example, I think, is that there are Koroks again, there's Korok seeds. But then there's this other sort of Korok type, I guess you would call it, where there are Koroks that have friends that are sort of nearby, but they're like hard to get to because there's like a river or you're on a sky island or something. And so what they'll do is they'll say like, you'll you'll encounter one Korok and they'll be like, I want to get to my friend. And then you've got to like do something to get them to that friend, do something often meaning like build some stuff with the systems. And I think some of the like damage scaling of the enemies is because they're trying to like softly say like, no, you should build a tank. <laughs> like you yeah. should build a tank right now. Like you should stop trying to attack this person with swords. But it's also a little bit like they kind of want their cake and want to eat it too, have their cake and eat it too. Cause it's like, well, y- you want me to do all this fusing stuff for weapons. Okay. But like you also want me to build stuff. Okay. But that's maybe a little dissonant with like, I haven't played a lot of this game. There's a lot of this game I know I've not played and I think is possible to discover. One of my sort of initial theories of the game was that, uh, I mean, you might actually know more than I do. So, you know, I don't know if you want to smile or something if I'm correct, but it seems like there's a part of this game that I've not encountered yet that has to do with like having, I mean, it was, this was in the trailer, right? Uh, I know some people didn't watch the trailer. You can have NPC companions of some sort and it looks like you can also sort of get like kind of nondescript like villager as people to follow you around and fight with you. And I feel like some of the scaling has to do with like those systems where they're like, no, you need to basically make yourself be stronger. Um, not just with like your own weapon or something and kind of approach stuff more creatively. But at the same time to go back to the earlier conversation, you're like, dude, I got 500 of hours of game to get through. Like, I don't want to build this stuff again now. Like, but I guess that's also why you get small spoiler. There's this thing called auto build, which like lets you uh, like build stuff kind of immediately. So I can see some things like that where you're like getting one shot and you're like, well, I'm just going to build my tank. And then you kind of like use your tank or whatever. Um, but I think it is weird because I think like to your point, like I think you're probably getting one shot a lot because it's probably in their interest from like a design perspective to actually incentivize you to think you need to be stronger beyond just having a stronger sword, which would say like, no, you need to build stuff, Josh. Uh, and that's the dude, this which is, is sort of thing. weird. Like, yeah. I feel this invisible hand of the developer, like all the time, the people who designed this game, like w- uh, the, one of the best examples I can think of is just the way. So if you think of Elden Ring, one of the most famous moments of that game is the Margit fight at the beginning of the game where it's like, if you're not strong enough, you got to leave and explore more. It's the developer's way of telling you, you got to explore more so you could get stronger and then come back. But you could beat him if like you, you just want to get good for me. Um, this, (laughs) this game is like, 
I, I constantly feel like they're trying to like margit mar me where they're like, oh, okay, th I'm not strong enough for this or do I need to build something better? If so, why does the system to build shit on the fly so shitty? Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I have this experience where I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I want to go south. Like, I just want to go south. Screw it. Let's see. Let's see what's south. And then I go south and then I fight this thing and I'm like, yo, there's no way I'm supposed to fight this thing right now. Like, this is way too high level. This is insane. I'm getting one shot constantly. I tried to fight this thing. You were like beelining the main campaign. I mean, to an, I didn't, I'm not beelining <laughs> the main campaign. Like after, this is actually after that, this is when I decided okay. to kind of do that, where yeah, I'm yeah. like, okay, they tell you go here and I'll just go there. And then on my way, I'll like see what's in the area. That's, that'll be my new path after I was just doing a bunch of just general exploration. But I would just, I would go somewhere and it's like, yo, this shit is just way too hard to kill. Like there's no way. And then I'm just like, I constantly find myself in places where I, I just don't feel like I'm supposed to be yet. And I'm like, when am I supposed to be here? I don't know. Like, I thought that this is where you wanted me to go next, but these things seem way too strong. Right. So, and then I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just playing the game wrong. I'm just trying to play the combat normally where I'm, it's, I'm exchanging blows with the enemy and I'm just trying to have a normal sword fight, sword and board fight. And they want me to use some like special modified weapon to do this. Okay, that makes sense. And then the special modified weapon that I make ends up sucking mm -hmm. and like still takes a long time to kill the enemy. And it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to do what I always do and use a freaking bomb flower because that's yep. the only thing that ever works for me is using bombs. So like 90% of the fights is like, do I have a bomb? Uh, yes. Like. I, I don't want to use it against these like low level mobs. So I'll just fight this fight normally. It's also, and if it's a hard fight, then I'll just use the bombs. Like that's, another, that's the whole game for me. Another part of this that's like really frustrating is that, um, I guess, so this, there's two parts to this. One is that like, uh, having like normal, like uncorrupted weapons in the game are like pretty rare. Like, and it's like sort of narratively, they say like, well, the gloom is affecting everything. So all the weapons are bad and someone in the first like little area even makes some comment to the degree of like, uh, you know, I've looked all over Hyrule and I think all the weapons are just decayed. And so what this that's means is that like, that's, this, what, that's this another thing. That's another thing that I'm talking yeah. about with the maliciousness of this yeah. game's design so where it's like, means is that you have, to, you suck have to fuse, you have to use this thing because all the weapons at a baseline suck. And so you have to use fusing, which is their like new mechanic to make the weapon actually stand a chance against these stronger enemies. But then the other thing on top of this is that they want you to like do this a lot because the other thing is that the weapons themselves still have durability things. So like on top of fusing, the weapons are still like weak as shit. And so they'll like break. But what this also means is that like you are just in menus all the fucking time. <sighs> You have to like you have and to you go can't into a fuse menu from the menu to like drop an item to like put it on the ground and you have to select the power and then fuse it. And so it's like, you know, a five, six second cycle, maybe a little less than like three seconds, three or four seconds to fuse a weapon, but you're doing it all the time. And these things take a long time and these weapons will just break to the point where you're like, it's like the cooking thing, honestly, that from Breath of the Wild, which they made a little better in this game. But it's like this just now worse in a different way with a different system where they're like, yeah, yeah, you got to fuse your weapons. And you're like, I don't want to fucking drop all my weapons on the ground to fuse them. Like, I just want to fuse them from a menu with like two buttons. That's all I want to do. But yeah. then like mm -hmm. also it's like the same thing with like arrows, too, where you like 
attach something to an arrow and you shoot it. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, you want to shoot, you want to shoot someone again? Okay. You have to attach it again. So it's like, and like breath of the wild, you like select your arrow and you just like shoot multiple times at the same target. And because again, like Josh said, stuff is like pretty hardy. You have to shoot a lot of arrows at something. So you have to like shoot. You have to like open your arrow, attach something, shoot, open a menu, attach something, mm-hmm. re-aim, shoot, open your menu, attach something, re-aim, shoot. And it's like about that fast. Maybe it's like a little turn-based slower. combat. Yeah, it's like it feels a little bit like fucking Fallout, like VAT system or something. Like it's yeah. There's this really there's this weird sort of like the cooking aspect of Breath of the Wild was like conceptually cool, but in practice, like incredibly tedious. And I think that the fusing stuff is running into the same thing where it's like, it just takes so much fucking fiddly effort to engage with this system that I'm only doing it now when I have to, when I'm like, this oh, is I'm what running I'm out saying, of weapons. Man. Yeah. It's like you, you have to ask yourself a lot. I have to ask myself a lot. Like what does, what do they want me to do here? Like, yeah. what am I supposed to be doing in this scenario? Because it feels like the game has been designed in such a way that it's trying to march it, tell me telepathically via the design decisions that I'm not doing it right. I have to try something else. And it happens all the time. Um, That being said, like, I don't want to when we talk about the bad things about a game, it's like it's because we already know all the good shit. Y'all heard all the good stuff. This game is that game. Like this is the aliens to Breath of the Wild's alien. In yeah, my like, opinion, it's, it's still like Breath of the Wild. It's still fun. All like I think like the one thing that I'm really surprised about. So we're talking about fusing. One thing I think that does actually sort of work surprisingly well is the um, ultra hand like attaching stuff thing. And I think that the reason mm-hmm. that works is that it's like it is sort of like fully diegetic, I guess. That's my, my buzzword every podcast, which is that you're not ever in menus to use that ever. Like you do mm-hmm. not have to use menus for that. You have to, if you want to pull out a Zonai device to drop it, that's one thing, but you can just like do it in the world really easily. Yeah. And it's surprising how much, like I'm not someone who like, or said differently, I make video games. I like use 3d modeling tools. Like I know how this stuff actually works. And so doing this as like recreation is like a pretty hard ask. Cause I'm like, that's boring. I don't want to do that, but they managed to make, was effectively like 3d modeling, like pretty fun and kind of just like fuck around Like you said, it's sort of like Kerbal space program. And like, it's funny cause I really go between like the system stupid. I don't want to do this to being like, well, you know, what, what yeah. if, what if just, what if I did this thing? And then the ghost of time, the game's like, yeah, you can do that. I'm like, hell yeah. It's and like that charm. shit's like fun and cool. Uh, does it feel like Zelda? No, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's like I, a- so this is the to talk to get back to some of the good stuff that hasn't been talked about. Um, I speaking of does it feel like Zelda? I want to talk a little bit about the story because that to me has been the big surprise factor for me where I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm invested. Like, I want to see what's happening here. And again, we won't get into spoiler stuff, but thematically, I think there's some really interesting shit going on that. Breath of the Wild was totally devoid of like mm-hmm. I I the vibe was there in Breath of the Wild, but it didn't feel like there was like that much subtextually that for me to read into there, um, especially like in comparison with other games like a Majora's Mask or something like that. But it feels like a lot of that stuff 
is back. And when I talk about the negatives of like the way that a lot of the stuff is clashing stylistically, I do think that Nintendo is actually reckoning with that stuff in a really interesting way in the way that the story is playing out. It's about this, um, generally at a general level, it's the game is about this like clashing of past, present, and future. And uh, the, the legacies left behind by the people in our past and how we carry that forward. And it's about like all of these legacies coexisting at the same time and how weird that makes you feel at a base level. Like that is what this game is about. So when we talk mm -hmm. about that's the feeling that you get from the design and the way that the game makes you feel from playing it, the, they are talking about that stuff in the story and it feels very it feels like intentional that this is what the story is about right like i don't know if you have anything to add up to this right about the bat right off the bat because i have like a, a lot to say about it no i mean i think i think it is sort of interesting and notable that like the last game to do this was majora's mask which was um itself sort of like a follow-on sequel to ocarina of time mm -hmm. that was also like ocarina was like a kind of whatever story but uh, Majora's Mask has like got a lot more sort of thematically going on with it. And I think that there's something similar here where we've like kind of moved past the obvious narrative and are getting into something that's a little more interesting. Um, that I think is cool. And I mean, it also sort of feels like they've got like the stuff now to do that. Uh, like kind of a mm -hmm. mixture of like, a there's just like a lot of stuff kind of at play and a lot of symbology and symbolism and kind of implicit narrative of Zelda that they can really play with that feels sort of relevant uh, in the way that Tears of the Kingdom sort of iterates on the design aspects. It also feels like it really expands out like that narrative thread that's kind of implied uh, in Breath of the Wild, uh, but kind of making its own thing. I can't speak too much to it though because I haven't actually done i think i've played like 15 hours maybe or something so i'm not like that far in uh but there's definitely like a lot more sort of shit going on one common theme of this game that i think you see even from very uh early on is this sense of like living in a bizarro world like this is mm -hmm. not the way things are supposed to be you're in this interim space where things are not right things are messed up and um, we're just trying to get through it to the best of our ability, which is a very 2023 theme. I mean, a very mm -hmm. like post 2016 sort of thing, I would say, where it's like, what, what alternate timeline are we living in? That's what like everyone in this game is asking, like at all times. And the game feels like that. It feels like they're reckoning with society in some ways, dude. This like, our attention is being pulled all over the place and like we have you know no nothing seems right and like the way that everything is and like it, it feels like they are asking all of these questions and trying to deal with all that stuff in like a very intense and like almost personal way that I, I find to be pretty powerful and I think that they're they're pulling it off pretty well I guess God, I feel like weird saying so many bad things about this game. But. I think it's like you, I think we're saying bad things in part because there's a deficit of people saying things about the game that aren't just like, oh, you like Breath of the Wild. Well, here it is again with the new lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And there's it's like definitely so, so not little. just Breath of the Wild, but with the new like it's so many things, dude. Like there's so much stuff to say about this game. It is so different, dude. Like it's it's also so it's so from soft. Yeah, I was like really. I, you think you said on the Discord as well. Like it feels like like Siofra, Shofra. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like I feel like the Nintendo like played Elden Ring and they're like, fuck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like they did an underground world. Damn it. Yeah. Like I definitely feel like there's a, I mean, even like right this first area, like this, all the sky islands, like look very lim- Limgrave. Like this looks like mm-hmm. Limgrave. Yeah. Which is like, God, that's actually such an apt comparison. Yeah. With like the golden just, trees and the kind of like twilight vibe. Yeah. Like this in, in the underground glory. area, like feels very, like you said, very, very, very from soft. I, I described it as like a, all the underground area sort of feels like Dark Souls 1's Ash Lake just kind of expanded out, uh, which is like cool. And it's cool to like play a Zelda like that. But it's also like it does pose like interesting philosophical questions about like the Zelda world. I think that like it's it's also part of the narrative. Like it's not uncritically thought about like um, one of the major parts of the game is like just not only are there like depths and sky islands, but there's like, there are people in the depths. And so you start to kind of learn these people and there's like statues of people that don't look like, you know, link or, um, any of like the Zonai people that you sort of encounter. Um, my and that's long, like a whole weird thing. My long extended Jacob Geller take, if I was like to write something about this game would be, about how centrally, and this is to kind of pick up my thread before um, before you stepped out for a sec, Kyle, which yeah. is that there's this sense in the game that like there's this constant friction between what the world is supposed to be and what the world currently is mm-hmm. um, that is created by our forebears and the people in our future. And, and it's kind of like carried through by the desires of the future that... <sighs> that it that was kind of championed and created in previous Zelda installments. Like this Zelda has a lot of interplay and references to previous Zelda games as yeah, these kind of That's really yeah, idealized, that's some of the stuff. Yeah, it's it's very like it's easter eggy in a sense, but it's very much a decision, right? Like they have a there's there's gear that alludes to stuff from previous games and this isn't new this was in breath of the wild to an extent but it feels more pervasive in this game like when you make food link is singing songs from the old game and and it's like the way that they talk about myth and legend and the things that happened in the past like these were the greats these were the people who made this world inhabitable for us and now it's all fucked now the world is, is terrible everything's upside down everything is everywhere hell is on earth and there's this kind of sense that pervades the game that like this is not the way things are supposed to be and that Link is right now just like trying to make sense of this world, which Mm -hmm. again feels like a very vital theme in 2023 when I do, this is like the most bizarro world vibe that I've like ever gotten in my entire life where it's like, what the (laughs) hell is even happening on this planet? Like, where am I? What is going on? Like I'm this constant sense sense of like, it's not even dread anymore. It's just like confusion. 
and just I like heard the most, most recent term I heard for it is this concept of the perma weird, which yeah. is like there. It was this guy who's like uh, he's, he's a blogger. His name's Vinkatesh Rao. I think I posted about him in the Discord mm-hmm. again a few times. But like he, he was on this podcast talking about how I guess it was an article he also wrote. But he was like he was like for the past like year or two we've talked about like the poly crisis or the triple crisis of like the pandemic, like the crashing financial economy, and like the weirdness of like everything else kind of like going like AI and stuff. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, we can't just be in crisis mode forever. Like we, yeah. we like, that's just not a sustainable human thing. It's kind of like a new normal. And he describes it as like the perma weird, which is this, I can go into a lot longer, but it's just this idea of like reckoning with what is sort of a fundamental state of affairs. That's just never going to go back to like pre 2020. We're like, we're in some like new mode that like no one really knows how to reckon with. And I think that, I mean, it's sort of, it's weirdly relevant. This, like you're saying to like, I think that Tears this is Kingdom, what this man. game is about, dude. I'm <laughs> like, I, I know that people laugh when people have takes like this, but I think the game does a lot of work to, to talk. It, it does a lot of idealizing of the past and like, again, where we're supposed to be and what the world is supposed to look like compared to what, if you talk to any citizen in this game, they're all like, yo, this is messed up. Like, this is all messed up. Please give us some semblance of order. Like, please return things to the way they were. Cause this is like, well, yeah, it's hard like people times. like, this is messed up. Like, the middle of the game is like this, like, um, little town called like Observation Camp or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like Lookout like, something. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but like it's effectively like a war camp, right? It's like it's like people who've been displaced. By There's a shelter, like the, like the main place that you're in there is like a sh- is it like a feels bomb like shelter. It, it feels, yeah, it feels like a fucking like catastrophe shelter where you go and there's like a hurricane or something, and people are like, "Yeah, shit's like fucked up," and like I'm here because like I'm trying to survive. It's also they haven't really talked about this a lot, but I also think about like sort of like power structures because all of like the world of Hyrule still kind of orbits like Hyrule castle, which is a sort of very like medieval ish thing where there's like a castle and it's sort of like dominion around it, you know, and there's still this like concept of like royalness and Royal authority. And the princess has her own guard. And I don't know if it gets into more in the story, but like, it sort of feels like that power structure is breaking down where people are like, they're like, you didn't even (laughs) just save us from a calamity. Like, and now there's some other shit going on and the princess isn't here and we have to like fend for ourselves. Like there's, there's a it's weird It's such a perma like weird power. thing. It's yeah. such a perma weird thing where it's like you just saved the world in the last game and now it's even worse. Like what the fuck yeah. is going on here? They're like a fucking stone ring fell on Kakariko village. Like that's worse than before when just the castle was a little fucked up. Legitimately the world in Breath of the Wild seemed better than it does now. <laughs> like it's there your state you have citizens in a freaking emergency shelter and lookout landing. Like it's that's that's my take on it. the game is about the perma weird. Thank you Kyle for allowing me to suss this out on air and helping out with the perma weird cuz I, I I really do think that this is what this game is about. Like at its core like all mm-hmm. the complexity, all the FOMO, all the clashing styles, it's all meant, it all works toward giving you this sense that things are not as they are supposed to be, which maybe is why this feels the least Zelda of any Zelda. And 
and it's running it's also, with but that. It's also like the it's the concept too that like the sort of it, I don't know. There's like a you could take a very like metatextual read of this and say like the con the, to what we were saying at the start of the podcast, right? Like the concept of what this game is as like a video game product is starting to break down where it's like, this is not just like a triple a video game. Like just, it's not just a Zelda. It's like the, it's the whole idea of what it is as a game is just incredibly strange because something else I haven't really talked about is like the weird, like very sort of uh, reflexive aspect of building stuff in the sense that like, it's kind of like animal crossing where you build weird stuff and want to share it. So like, it's not even like you're playing a Zelda game and beating dungeons or whatever. There's a performative aspect to this game that itself looks outwards from the game itself. and is not an internal universe. Like Mm -hmm. you make weird shit or slash link makes weird shit in tears of the kingdom. Not because like a Goron needs it, but because people on your social media feed are interested in seeing funny things. And so that's like, and that's like a huge driving force of the game, right? Is to like have things in the game, in this world that kind of inspires you to do atypical actions in the game to serve a purpose that's like greater than the necessary sum of the need. And that's like fucking weird. This is, I think also like, uh, David Kanga wrote a great essay on uh, Tears of the Kingdom recently that is like super, super, super good. That kind of touches on some of this stuff as well, where like this game is weird, like capital W weird in the sense that like it feels like it's actually kind of reckoning with some of this stuff. Maybe a little bit like I never beat it, but like a lot of what I played a Final Fantasy VII remake is kind of similar where it's kind of speaking to its legacy through its own actions versus just being like a final fantasy game. Yeah. I, to If I get what you're saying, it's this sense that and contextually, the way that I see it is like, they saw what people were doing with breath of the wild and going like, okay, they're just trying to break it. They're just trying to speed run the game. They're just trying to like do other things. Oh. And it's like, well, yeah, you created this world where emergent gameplay exists. Like, of course this is going to happen. I have, to, sorry, then, I have to step away for like a second. There's someone here to, uh, check out my EC unit. So, <laughs> so yeah, I have yeah, to no step problem. away for like five or 10 minutes. I'll be back. I'm just going to mute myself. Sorry about that. Yeah, you're good. talking about the perm weird and we were talking about the story and how it feels like it's it's a product of our time and this very specific 2023 vibe of the perma weird right and so the yeah the article is interesting because the perma weird is like this um and his sort of conception is like the it's like the third it's like the second or third phase of like kind of a bigger cycle so it's the we, we are now in the perma weird for his description, but the perma weird is also prefaced by this thing that he calls the great weirding, which is basically you would, we would think of it in our world as like sort of COVID happening. And then kind of the, 
breaking down of society in some ways is, is kind of in response to the pandemic. Um, and there's like, there's a way to kind of contextualize that a little bit in terms of how, like the relationship between breath of the wild and um, tears of the kingdom where like breath of the wild is interesting because it also has this moment of like crisis, right? Where like the, the Royal family, like the King dies, the princess is gone. The hero has left. Um, and we're now like a hundred years into this, like kind of takeover of existing power structures with no sort of nexus. Um, that in a way feels like sort of the calamity that's like, you know, big and bad. Uh, and there's a way to sort of think about that period as like the great weirding that results in like the perma weird, which I don't know if they've actually said, you might know better than I do, like how far from breath of the wild time wise tears of the kingdom. is. It's really vague about that. It's, it's really vague. And I can't tell if it's trying to be like vague on purpose. It seems like it's been like 10 or 15 years. It's like sort of my, yeah. my rough take. But imagine you've been sort of enslaved by, you know, a giant beast effectively for a hundred years and you're like royal family that's supposed to provide for you and presumably be like the economic nexus of your province is like besieged. And then like the hero comes back and saves everything and then things are bad like 10 years later. Like that's going <laughs> to, that's going to really reduce your faith in institutions. Uh, and I think that's mm-hmm. so sort of like, there's, there's definitely kind of like a, I think his framework actually does sort of map well to Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom's um, follow-up and kind of what it does with those themes. Uh, And sort of also like uh, how those themes not only work internal to the game, but how they reflect the way that we play games themselves. Um, Right. Right. But you know what's surprising, Josh? Uh, none of this shit came up in any review for the game. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's why I'm like, what did they like? It's insane. Who was to holding me. a gun to your head saying just, that you yeah, can't talk about any of this? Just to get real, like gamer shit about this. Like, just it's it is honestly incredible how few good opinions there are on the game, and I don't mean like um, people being positive like on correct. it. Correct like right opinion correct right but also just like no one there's been like so little actually like just capital g good writing on it that i could even like agree or disagree with um and i don't like maybe the review is not the space for that but like also why not i think it really like hit the nail on the head for me when polygon was sort of getting really excited about how they've been working on guides for tears of the kingdom for a fucking year. They're like, we've been working on content for tears of the kingdom for a year. And we're so excited to unveil like 180, you know, individual pieces that are like SEO'd out the ass. So we'll be the ones you discover or like, and then you go to their review and it's like a fucking wet fart. You're like, what? And then the reviews also talks about spending 80 hours on like, Okay. You spent 80 hours on this game and you already have sort of abdicated responsibility or like you obviously don't care that the review matters because you're doing so many guides for the game anyway. Like why can't the review maybe be something slightly more interesting? And like, it's, it's like these reviews just feel totally on rails. Like there's just, there's just zero actual review going on. 
it's it's really incredible. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm dire not, it for is. the record earlier. I wasn't saying that um, there have been no <clears throat> correct opinions about the game. I'm saying I don't even care about if an opinion is right or wrong. I'm just saying like have an opinion, which like a lot of people just don't seem to have an opinion about the game besides like it's fun, which is like not a fucking, it's not an opinion. It's not like a take. You're not telling me anything new about yeah. the game. Like if I get a hundred tens out of tens, like what is that telling me? Like I was already going to play the freaking game. Like just put the number on it and just like, give me something else after that, man. Well, it's, it's weird and because it's like, I, so I can much see like, to say. I feel like you could give a game a score and then have the critical response to that review lend you like the credence to say, okay, we should do some guides on this. But like, that's not how it works. Like you need those guides day one. So your articles mm-hmm. get the clicks that get boosted in search engines. So it's like, you're already saying the review doesn't matter. And like, you're already saying that like, like you're, <laughs> I searched something like, um, this is a minor spoiler. Um, there's a thing called Heroes Path Mode in Breath of the Wild, which is really cool. It basically it was a DLC thing, and it shows you where you've been on the map. It's like a little little line that draws across the map. And I was like, oh, it's like sort of weird that like that's not in this game just to start because that was a really good feature. That was just nice to know where you've been or not. And so I looked it up and was like, okay, well, uh, well is it in uh, Tears of the Kingdom? And again, small spoiler, turns out yes. It just becomes a thing that you get for the Pura Pad. Um, if you like follow the quest, but it's like, I like 100% bet that that article or anything of its ilk gets so many more hits than the review anyways. And the review will never be looked at ever again that like, why not just like make it, you can still give it a 10 and just say something interesting. <laughs> and it's like, it's a 10 out of 10 review. You're, dude. So you're like, saying it is like a, like theoretically perfect is the best and score you can give a game and you're like it's like breath of the wild bro i'm dude do you think this game is a 10 out of 10 no i think right? this, i think this game is like like if, we, if we're if we're using the whole score yeah it's like an eight or a nine it's really good you know is it a, yeah, 10 it's out a 10? really good like, game no like i think i think a 10 out of 10 for me is like breath of the wild is a 10 out of 10 like that and i think that it becomes a 10 out of 10 because it's reckoning with 20 years of zelda this is just like, yeah, it's like Breath of the Wild. It's like really fun and cool. I enjoy playing it. But like if that's the criteria for a 10 out of 10, then like Bone Razor Minions is a 10 out of 10. Maybe we should be more <laughs> liberal with our 10 out of 10s, you know? Sure. I, I it's mean, like, it's like to me, there's an, there's an aspect of influence and an aspect of like, yeah, again, doing something new and like reckoning with all these like larger ideas that this game, it, it is doing a lot of that, to be fair, like what we've talked about in this show, but not in nearly as like groundbreaking a way as breath of the wild i would give it probably like a nine yeah i mean not to get into the weeds about it i i, th- I don't even think it's i don't think it's weird to give it a 10 for I the record you should buy but it if you're gonna make it, that argument you, know? you should you should have a, a strong argument for why it is a 10 compared to like a breath of the wild you know like you make an argument man like say something about why it's good that i haven't heard that might what's, what's also think about this game too? in a different way it's like so much of not only that, but it's like the stuff that is said is so like neutered for fear. Like you're saying of like invoking the wrath of gamers that like, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like it's so, there's so much fear in these reviews. Yeah. It's, it's sort of just like, and it's, it's so dumb. Cause like you said, no one cares like a day after release that like they, they said something. I feel like you should just put a review up and say this review has spoilers in it and then just say like, whatever. 
It's also yeah. like especially dumb because the fucking art book and the game leaked like months before it came out. So it's not like there were no spoilers in the wild already. Yeah. And also like, I feel like we've done a pretty good job to talk about it on this podcast without really spoiling major things. And we're still able to like say something about it despite not having played the whole game. Like it's clearly playing with these things that are, you could talk about um, that I'm sure kind of get developed even more over the course of the game, but I don't think a requirement to saying something about the game especially when reviewers will already throw around this like barely scratch the surface phrase. So they're already abdicating responsibility for saying that they played the whole game and yet feel a need to comment on it, which is fine. But then it's like, okay, we'll say something then, you know, like make some claim. Yeah. Brood says there's a lot in the game of Zelda taking direct action, building community education and infrastructure to help rebuild after the last game, but tons of it hitting the fan come tears of the kingdom yet these structures keep on. Yeah, it did get the sense that like, you know, it's the beginning of the game. It's, it's a, the beginning of this game is so weird too. Can we talk about that? Cause like oh my God. you get the sense that like after the previous game, they're like, oh, we're rebuilding Hyrule, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And then they're just like, let's go see what's in the basement. It's also funny. It's like, what the fuck what? are you doing? You have a, ca- how long has this castle been here? And you never thought to like, I, yeah, you never thought basement? to look in the fucking basement. Like what? <laughs> all this you're telling me all this stuff was here and you only saw like trace amounts of it on the world and then now the entire world is covered in zonai shit like what like you're 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 making shit up for sure like you're sure you're just trying to get take the shortest possible route to the perma weird yep 100 percent yeah there's i mean i know there's jacob geller we gotta get jacob back on the show were you on the episode that jacob geller was on no i missed it i was really sad to miss that one. Ah, yeah we gotta get jacob back on the show because jg's jg was talking about you know this is the type of thing where he has like 20 you know an hour-long video dedicated to like just talking about this exact thing and like referencing all articles that we talk about here i'm gonna write an article on tears of kingdom and the perma weird and then Geller's going to make it into a video. It'll be a true superculture collab. It's a it's a real Geller kind of concept, I think. The, G- this Geller- Gellerian. <laughs> Gellerian. Gelleresque. It's, it's Geller, yeah. Oh man, there's I mean, and there's so much more that I want to talk about with this game that I I'm sure like we, we should will. do like a follow-up podcast in like a few months where we've like played more and like the dust has settled a little bit. Yeah. I agree. Um, any other ideas that you have about this game before we start wrapping things up? Nothing yet. I'm really interested to see, like, I think sort of like what we were just saying, I think to say maybe like hopes and dreams, right? So we talked a lot about what the game is so far. You're further than I am, but I am interested to see how things have changed. I think actually, um, I think it was, it was the Simon Parkin interview with Phil Fish on his new podcast on Simon Parkin's podcast or Phil Fish mentioned that one of his favorite thing, I think it was Phil's. Yeah. I think it was, this was Phil Fish's thing. He said that one of his favorite things in games is like them happening in time, like time sort of passing mm. as a thing. And I think that it's, it's actually pretty rare in games to have time passing. Everything sort of feels often like a snapshot in part because time passing is like very expensive, <laughs> like from a production mm-hmm. standpoint. So like, I think that seeing that in Zelda will be really interesting to sort of see where characters go. I'm only going to be like half oriented towards that just because of how much I played Breath of the Wild and sort of where I played Breath of the Wild at. But at the same time, I think that will be interesting to see. I'm interested to see like 
the kind of new big shit. Like, I don't know. I don't know what any of it is. I know some of it exists. I never, I think it was actually that there was the polygon review that was like, you remember sky dragons where there's like stuff like that. And I'm like, all right, cool. We'll see. We'll see. There is. Um, so I'm excited to see stuff like that. Uh, I'm excited to build some more stuff, but I think it's a sort of weird thing where, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so far my experience of tears, of the kingdom has felt like kind of breath of the wild plus plus. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see when it, I'm interested to see when and how it kind of gets past that. Um, and when I see that, you know, who, who's to say what the actual moment is. Um, but I am now interested in playing through more of the story to write this article. <laughs> uh, but I think I think also like you, I'm taking a way less ponderous approach to this game where I'm like, I mean, I do, you know, I have a kid now, so I can't just wander around grassy fields for hours in the same way. Um, so I'm going to like, I think stick much more closely to the story. So like right now I'm headed to Kakariko Village. I'll probably head to like Hebra after that. I just kind of see what's going on because it does seem... <laughs> kind of like what you're saying it's just a lot more dense too i think in terms of what it's offering in terms of like kind of on all fronts so oh one last thing i'll say is i think it's interesting that you cannot share zonai creations as a thing Hmm. because I, i sort of think like coming off of animal crossing i would i would be surprised if there were not very compelling arguments for doing this um, for this game. Basically being at, like having some thing where you like go to a tower and you can like download your friend's Zonai devices or whatever and share them. Um, but I think their choice to not allow, and it just, just it's not, I'm not just like grasping at straws here, right? There's clearly a precedent for this in like Animal Crossing. Nintendo's like way more interested in social stuff, it seems like. So it's not crazy that they would consider this. But I sort of think... It was, it's good that they did not do this because I think what you would get is that you would just get like this kind of weird anteing of stuff where like you basically just like wait for your friend to like through some game of telephone, like get the good device and you just download it and never think about it again. So by kind of preventing you from just kind of being able to get the best thing, um, you kind of get to explore it on your own. And grand, you can like see stuff on social media and like make it or whatever. But um, I think it's sort of cool that it's not just like, yeah, download your friends' things. Because that would be maybe a little weird. Not necessarily perma-weird, just I can see weird. them adding it <laughs> at a certain point. I can see them adding it as well as like DLC. I mean, well, I think was like Austin Walker, I think right now, is like beating the drum about making a creative mode. Like there are these like why isn't why doesn't Zelda have a creative mode? Clearly, it needs a creative mode, and I I would not be surprised if they'd have creative mode as like a DLC with like a lot more contraption sharing stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That seems like that would make a lot of sense. Crafting games, man. Zelda yeah. is now a crafting game. Everything's a crafting game. Survival crafting. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse: open world, survival, <laughs> crafting, early access. Who would have thought like crafting like before Minecraft, who could have even conceptualized that like it would be such a big thing. Like crafting is the new platforming and has been for years, obviously, but 
It's just weird. It's, I would have never. It's like phone games. I think I think it's like the long tail of phone game stuff. Because I think mm. phone games are the first to really like do crafting mechanics because it maps well to monetization. Minecraft. I mean, my, but also like phone games were happening at the same time. And Minecraft crafting was also not. Very few people actually do Minecraft style crafting. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of like yeah. open ended grid thing. It's much more like material combining, which I would say is much more mobile gamey. Um, this is more Minecraft mining though, Minecraft uh, crafting. Except for the, yeah, like the Zonai shit. Oh, like the Zonite. That's like way more mobile gamey. Yeah, I need some. Yeah. We even got the gotchas in there. We got the fucking gotchas in there. <laughs> Yeah, again, like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's such a weird thing. You put a freaking gotcha in your game. Like, that's like, that's like some fucking Genshin shit. Like, that's, that's like literal a literal gotcha. Like, and yeah. people, I don't know, man. I get way too, like, annoyed about the amount of people who, like, hate when people read into this stuff, even though there's, they put literal gotchas in this game, bro. You don't think they're, like, making some kind of commentary on that? You don't think they're, like, Link uses a freaking Nintendo Switch. Yeah. Well, yeah. It takes pictures of stuff. Like, what? Come on. Like, it's the most... Like, there there haven't been analogs like this in previous Zelda games. Like, I guess mm. this is another point, like, in favor of what we're talking about with this very, like, 2023 perma-weird thematic stuff going on, where it's like, they haven't had this shit in previous Zeldas where it's like, He's got an iPad. <laughs> like he's no, using a no. gotcha machine to get new stuff. Like there might have been, there might have been something. To be fair, that was similar. The Sheikah was like, well, the Sheikah Slate. But I'm thinking of, I think an Oracle of Seasons and Ages. I think there was some like weird thing. But I mean, yeah, it's like not. He's a flip, a uh, flip phone. <laughs> no, there's like I think there's like a Game Boy or something. I don't remember. Oh, okay. Maybe, but like, yeah, I mean, but I think like, regardless, yeah, it's like, it's, it's so, it's much more in your face where it's like Link has a gotcha, a gotcha <laughs> machine, a literal gotcha machine is like extra, like that's out of pocket. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, we're going to chew on this thing a little bit more and, uh, we'll let you know what we're thinking in a few months or weeks or whatever. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot here. I think we, we got to some of it that I hadn't heard talked about before, which is really was all I wanted out of this episode and we got it. So, um, if you want to hear more, listen after the conclusion end song and I'll read it and the entire article that we we're talking about earlier in this episode and <laughs> go into detail about how I think it connects along with some random fucking tirades about why aren't they talking about this stuff in the reviews. But <sighs> Tears of the Kingdom, Weird World, it's, it's all here. here. It's, it's all here. here. Um, you ready to wrap up? Yeah, man. Let's end it. All right, this has been Bad in Podcast, episode 123. Thanks again for listening. Again, you can find us on Twitter at Bad End Podcast. Rate us and review us on iTunes. If you want to contribute and be part of our wonderful Discord, patreon.com slash badend. Help us out there. And uh, yeah, super culture. Check out bullet points. Heterotopias, friend of the show, slash superculture member, Gareth Damian Martin. They're coming Just out. Just go look at Gareth's Twitter. There's so crazy much awesome stuff shit. happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Um, check out Cantata on Steam. And uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. See Later. you, everybody. Thank you.
get into some of the meat that I wish they had talked about in reviews thematically because I this is why I have this freaking podcast with Kyle because I can't figure all this stuff out by myself. Like I have these half ideas where I'm like, I have to do research in order to fill them out, right? And, and I would do that work when I was writing a lot, when I was like making essays and doing things. And you get to these points and you get to these ideas by, by yourself. But when you're talking with someone, again, like Kyle, like Katie, formerly of Bad End Podcast on this show with us, um, it's like you you get these revelations and like that whole perma weird thing is like such a, like a take an idea that I wouldn't, I didn't like kind of realize on my own, but I'm glad that Kyle's there to kind of like help me feel in that space and just like recognize what I'm talking about to the point where like he can actually make that contribution and say like, this is, I think this might be what you're talking about. And it's like totally hundred percent right. And I think it's like so vital to what this game is. I don't think it, I don't, I also don't think that it's like a, um, I don't think that the perma weird idea is like a stretch either at all. Like, I don't think it's a stretch at all. Like it's one of those things that seems like it could be, but let's pull up this perma weird article. I've used the word perma weird for a few years now, mainly in great weirding series, my great weirding series, but in some other writing as well is my modest entry into the ongoing contest to name the present, which Adam Tooze's turn poly crisis currently seems to be winning. Adam Elkus coined a similar term, the omni-crisis. Then there's permacrisis, which I think was coined by John Robb, but I'm not sure crisis theories and names are popular. I suspect, though, that crisis theorizing is barking up the wrong tree in its anxiety to inspire an actionable sense of generalized collective urgency about the overall state of the world. Crisis theorizing misses the essence of what is going on. There is no default hyper object for a sense of collective crisis to be about. At the scales of complexity where these crisis theories apply, the object of the crisis must to some degree be constructed by the collective sense of urgency it induces. But it appears that no such coherent consensual object can be constructed in the regimes we are talking about. The pandemic came close for a bit, but it was merely a regular sort of crisis, not the kind of meta-prefixed crisis that terms evoke. In general, we have not been in a state of continuous crisis, poly, omni, or perma. We have merely been convinced we ought to be. That the stream of bewildering events ought to add up to something we can collectively get worked up about and do something about together. I think we are experiencing an end-of-history subversion of the possibility of a collective sense of urgency at the largest of social scales. Coordinated action at such scales, to the extent that it is needed, must originate somewhere other than in a shared sense of urgency. The last men at the end of history cannot sustain any sense of collective urgency for any length of time at the important scales, and mere individual or even tribal actions do nothing to alleviate the sense of collective, even universal, crisis in waiting. The world is now too complex for that to work. So to operate by a crisis theory of the present is to navigate by social fictions indistinguishable from religious eschatologies. This does not mean large-scale problems don't exist. It merely means crisis urgency framings are about as useful as religious frames. They are merely doomsday theories of the presence that keep rolling over into the future. So if I'm reading this correctly, it's saying essentially that like the way that these crises we're experiencing today, they're not like, they're, they're a big deal, obviously, but they're not like so intense, so, you know, 
galvanizing that it actually causes people to get together and do something about it. Uh, it's not like World War II where like everyone was just, di or the Great Depression where like people, everybody had to change their lives or like it affected things on this large scale where people had to do something. Um, and he's saying that there's a, there's a way that it almost feels like that kind of, that kind of a movement or crisis is almost feels impossible in this like weird state that we're in right now. And that it's impossible to sustain the sense of collective urgency needed to actually make that kind of a move. So to operate by a crisis theory of the present is to navigate by social fictions in a state. Okay. Bruce Sterling in his annual prognostications at the well, which Drew Austin has some nice commentary on as well, almost gets away from the gravity well of crisis theorizing. I'm mildly surprised at how much cultural continuity this particular decade has to offer. It's like the year 2020 started and that year has never stopped since. There's something very 2020s about attempting and failing to quote, turn the page on inconvenient truths that can't and don't go away. That's why each year tends to repeat the last. I wouldn't call that moral cowardice because people do not and cannot really ignore the pervasive problems. They do see them and tend to complain quite consistently about the same issues year after year, but without ever getting much done about them. It's rare to see any public problem that's analyzed, agreed upon, confronted, dealt with, and dismissed. All the crises tend to thrive and to mutate into long-term shambolic debacles. It's a decade that feels the need to marinate in its own distresses, doom-scrolling as a way of life. Unlike Bruce, I am not surprised. This continuity and mutation into, quote, long-term shambolic debacles, though I would challenge the word de the debacle part, is precisely what I've been going on about with my notion of the perma-weird. Arguably, once you're in a regime of long-term shambolic evolution, you can't really think of it as a crisis at, at all. The perma-weird leaves us in a perennial state of frustrated urgency, a cortisol-saturated state of being with nothing to do and nowhere to go. And the longer it persists, the more we begin to harbor the growing suspicion that perhaps there is no crisis as such. That for the most part, despite the snowballing weirdness, there is nothing in the circumstances for which a literal crisis response in a biochemical flight or fight or flight sense is appropriate, either at an individual or collective level. Things like climate change and the culture war are not even crises in a figurative sense. They are phenomena that exist on social scales we are simply not used to inhabiting at all, in crisis mode or otherwise. Our intuitions and frames from smaller scales do not apply. These phenomena are persistent strands of disorienting weirdness and we are leaning to adapt and to and live with without coping to it, without coping to it. Effective or not, our adaptive responses don't seem to alleviate our sense of crisis or restore any sense of normalcy, new or familiar. We just add or drop strands in our crisis portfolio as the situation evolves. To me, this suggests that crisis thinking is a vestigial kind of cognition, again, like religion. More precisely, an undirected state of generalized crisis is a kind of nostalgia for an imagined present. One that we fail to recognize as a reactionary impulse because it does not anchor to the past. To the extent it is merely imagined, any sense of normalcy associated with it is manufactured, as is any sense of crisis. I have argued before that normalcy is just the majority sect of magical thinking, but if so, by extension, so is any larger sense of crisis. If a situation fails to spark any sort of acute and decisive response at the right scale, but also fails to decisively kill us for 
failing to respond, is crisis really the right term for it? Is urgency really the right mood for responses? Wow. I suspect it is better to think of normalcy and crisis as paired kinds of magical thinking that define imaginaries of the present. Your particular urgent crisis is a function of the normalcy you choose to fetishize. Your heavens make your hells. This is the tears of the kingdom thing, like, in so many clear ways, in my opinion. Like, I think this is kind of what tears of the kingdom is about. Like, is this is... It sounds insane when you say it like this, when you're reading an article like this or a piece like this. Um, your particular urgent crisis is a function of the normalcy you choose to fetishize. So like to us, normal is Breath of the Wild. I, I'm sorry that I'm like, this sounds so fucking corny now that I'm talking about video games, but like I, I'm not talking about the sense of crisis uh, and what's happening globally. Here, I'm talking about what's happening in Breath of the Wild and how it relates to stuff that's happening in the real world, okay? If we take it in from that direction, it's a little bit less cringe. But um, the game is very much about what the normalcy we choose to fetishize. Like the fierce deity fucking armor set that's described as like, sorry, this is like a thing that I found pretty early on in the game, but... Like the description is like from a time when the moon threatened to fail to fall on the earth. And it's like this legendary time of like this hero who saved the world. And it's like, that's what's normal to us. Like that's what the world should look like. But when you think about it, like Majora's Mask, nothing about what was happening in that game was normal. Obviously the Majora's Mask may be the biggest anomaly in the Zelda series. But if we take any... Uh, hero of Hyrule, any Link, any Zelda of the past, like what they were doing was not normal in a lot of senses. Um, and what was happening was not normal. It's just that the way that we saw it felt normal compared to what is happening now. Um, at the same time, it feels like Tears of the Kingdom is a game that is like most explicitly trying to create a world where everything feels like it's not what it's supposed to be, where everything feels like it's like out of line with what normal is in the Zelda universe. It is weird to talk of the present in terms of imaginaries. We are comfortable with the notion that past and future can be imaginaries. We talk of normalized versus revisionist histories and of ranges of speculative futures, but the present seems less open to such speculative understandings. The past and future seem to fan out behind and ahead of the narrow bottleneck of constrained possibility that we inhabit and name the present. Surely there is no room for nostalgia and imagination there. This is also super Tears of the Kingdom. Like we're talking about the past, we're talking about the future. Like this is exactly what I was talking about. And Kyle, this is like, this is this podcast, dude. Kyle brings this shit to me. And this is like exactly what I was trying to get at. Huh. Yet, no, there, yet there is no metaphysically compelling reason for this sense of the present being a bottleneck of possibility. In fact, it makes more sense to assume that if there are many pasts and futures, there are many presents as well. So why are we unable to see them? Why can we not choose to inhabit a present that is not a state of frustrated urgency? That is not a nostalgia for an imagined present. 
that is not understood in terms of an awkwardly prefixed generalized crisis. I think this is happening because we are attached to a fixated sense of personal agency that is inseparable from a fixed sense of the present. And the present is getting too complex for any such attachment to be a stable one. So you are forced to choose moment to moment whether to perpetuate, to perpetuate your sense of a stable normacy, normalcy or your sense of your own agency. If the show must go on, you must accept helplessness within it. If you reject helplessness, there is no show. The present is that which we can act on, and in simpler worlds, our sense of normalcy and crisis, the quote, show, is a fragile ephemeral map of our own agency. And because this agency is necessarily a function of individually varied stakes and capabilities, we cannot help but see different patterns of normalcy and crisis in the world around us. Patterns that get harder and harder to reconcile into sustained shared understandings and imperatives as the world gets more and more complex. The simple consensus show turns into a complex shit show that no two people process in the same way. With apologies to Tolstoy, every simple show is the same to all players, but every player experiences a complex shit show in their own way. The world has gotten more complex than we can imagine shared overlays for, and this presents as a persistent weirdness that leaves us with the nostalgia for shared, for a shared imagined present that we can process into a persistent sense of generalized crisis. But consensus failure is not necessarily a crisis except to nostalgic imagination. If you can give up the nostalgia, there is a chance you might find there is no crisis. The end of history is perhaps best understood as a threshold of complexity beyond which the present is uninhabitable for collective imaginations at the scales we yearn for. Only atomized individuals and unsatisfyingly small tribes can make the journey from past to future. The post-historical present, unlike the past and future, is a lonely place. That is perhaps the right definition of the perma-weird, a condition shaped by the inescapable loneliness of the present. A lot going on there, especially toward the end. Um, I don't, like, so talking about Breath of the Wild as being, like, about this is, is weird, right? And this is obviously something that a lot of people who read Crit and who interface with Crit all the time will just know and I'm like re-explaining something to you. But if you're listening to this and like saying this is a stretch, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I'm not saying that Tears of the Kingdom is like about this article and everything it's talking about. I'm saying that when there are big trends happening and there are big um, cultural seismic shifts happening, people think about them and people process them in different ways. And when you're creating a massive piece of art and you have things in your mind, sometimes you just so happen to make your thing about these large cultural mo movements that are happening. And I don't think it's too far-fetched, the concept that two different parties processing these large seismic cultural shifts would end up covering some of the same bases and that comparing the two pieces side by side may yield insight on the other. And I think that's what's happening in this piece where like a lot of this stuff is reckoning with these large social trends that also happen to be things that 
uh, Breath of the Wild is obsessed with in a much less explicit way, but I think way way that is like also uh, important because I look at this piece and like, you know, maybe it's because I'm playing Breath of the Wild five, six, seven hours a day, but this shit looks like exactly what this game is getting it in a lot of ways. Like thematically, you play the game and you're like, what the hell is this game about? Like what's gonna happen? It's like this, this is what it's about. It's about creating a present as an attempt to cope with the loneliness of the world. So you are forced to choose moment to moment whether to perpetuate your sense of a stable normalcy or your own sense of agency. Like, like what we're talking about with tone in this game um, and Breath of the Wild, like Breath of the Wild set the tone in a very literal way where it was like, this is what this world feels like. And it was confident in that. And it created this like very confident setting as far as what it should look and feel like. And yet this game is like, that doesn't exist because there are so many possibilities where it's like, do I want to relive the Breath of the Wild experience by like getting rid of all the things that are like, you know, not paying attention to all the stuff that I've been presented with? You know, do I want to like essentially try traversing this world in the same way that I did with Breath of the Wild so I don't break that sense of magic? Or do I embrace my agency do I go with all the tools that I've been given and totally like turn this experience into something new and different that is like a completely different thing from Zelda and Breath of the Wild and everything that I know about this franchise altogether? Like this is what this article is saying in like in, in a larger sense about how we react toward the changes happening in society and like how we interact with them on the daily. Like it's all tied in with like that sense of FOMO that we get, which is tied in with the inherent shareability of the emergent things that you do in Tears of the Kingdom that Kyle had also brought up. They're all in this cloud of like weird 2023-ness that is pervasive in this game. And this like, this article's going over it. All that stuff from the 2023 side of things. I like it. I love shit like this. Side-by-side things that I wanna talk about. because. We have this stuff in the Discord all the time where I'm like, man, this would be like just great to talk about at a like larger scale because like there's so much unpacking that we can do and like reading an article and just talking about it. Kyle sends me articles, man, that I'm just like, wow, this is, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And uh, let me, um, let me go to, just a sec. I'm sorry, I'm changing the, uh, I don't want to show like Kyle and I's chat history here, but he sent me this article. He sends me these articles, man. Can pickleball save America? Oh God. Oh God. Oh, here it is. So this is like something I had been thinking about, not about pickleball specifically, but about sports. And um, it's been at the top of mind recently and the way that sports are designed and the way that esports are designed and the communities that we create and how the sports that we create and the things that we want to see from our sports perpetuate and bolster our sense of like what we value in society. 
and how they like hold up long held uh, social stigma and long held social paradigms that are like not necessarily good. And when you see the alternative, you're like, wow, like this could be really cool. And this article is ostensibly about that, but I never actually got the chance to check it out, even though Kyle sent it to me. The sport beloved for its democratic spirit could unite the country if it doesn't divide itself first. Oh, Kyle's back. Hey, I was just reading articles and talking to them about them. <laughs> um, so I just, I read the article that you sent me and I just, I'm going to put that in like at the end of the episode as like an optional if people want to listen to it, they can. Yeah, a little extra bit. So I recorded a, like a pre-episode thing where I'll just say like, yo, if you want to listen, there's going to be more stuff after the, after the episode. That's just like appendices appendices but that's a, that's a good ass article the perma weird and i was reading it and i was like this is everything that we're talking about with this game dude yeah sure <laughs> 